You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here and that we're spending some time together. And I'm so excited to share the work of my guest with you this week. I think it's a great way, a great topic to start the week with, especially if you're listening first thing in the morning. Um, We are talking all about kindness, and we're talking with Houston Craft. He is an author and a speaker, and he says his job is to practice kindness. Now, what does that mean? Well, in high school, he started an organization called Random Acts of Kindness, etc., to create a more connected, compassionate campus. And in college, he created Our Kindness with a focus on service, community building, and reducing anxiety through intentional acts of care. Over the next eight years, Houston spoke at over 600 schools, organizations, and events globally to over half a million people. He has spoken in over 30 states, Mexico, Canada, and Uganda. And in 2016, Houston co-created Character Strong, which provides curriculum and training for safer and kinder schools, and has already worked with 2,000 schools internationally, serving over 1 million students with their message daily. And in 2019, Houston was even featured in a Lay's ad for their Spreading Smiles campaign. So Houston knows a thing or two about kindness. And I asked him on the show because I wanted to talk about his new book, Deep Kindness, A Revolutionary Guide for the Way We Think, Talk, and Act in Kindness, which pairs antidotes with actual actions that can make real change in our lives and the lives of others. And so we are talking about the different types of kindness, you know, what the world really needs today, and really taking a look at the gap between our belief in kindness and our ability to practice it well. It is a practice like anything else. It's not just, I'm a kind person because I I participated in a charity event and now I'm good for the year. No, it's these daily actions. And so we talk about what we can do to foster um, this practice in our own lives and how to start the day, how to end the day with that mindset. And when you do that, not only are you benefiting everyone else around you, of course, you're being a kind person, but you're benefiting your your spirit and your soul. And I notice a difference. You know, if I start the day where I'm like, okay, I'm going to be kind and curious today, I'm going to make that kind of my mantra for the day, I have a drastically different experience than if I just wake up in a reactive state. So I think you're going to get so much value out of this episode. I know I did. I'm already using some of the, the tips that Houston shared in our conversation in my daily life. So I'm a little ahead of the game, but you're going to get caught up here in the next half hour. Uh, I hope you love this episode. If you do, please share it out and bless a friend with it. And uh, please leave us a review. Thank you for all the f- reviews coming in. If you haven't yet, please do that. I would appreciate it so, so much. All right. Enjoy my episode with Houston Craft. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods. Public Goods is the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, they have everything all in one place. And knowing where your products come from, what's actually in them, is so important. It's a brand that you can trust, and you save a lot by joining them. And we've worked out an exclusive deal just for the Motherhood Unstressed podcast listeners. You receive $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again. They're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash unstressed or use code unstressed at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S.com forward slash unstressed to receive $15 off your first order. Today's episode is also brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day, which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health, like their new Bee Soothe Cough Syrup, the truly clean cough syrup that helps you get back on your feet. And you don't have to take it just when you're sick. You can take it occasionally um, for your throat and immune support. I mean, in this cough syrup, you don't have chemicals. You have these naturally powerful immune supporters like pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. All of these things have been proven in scientific studies to help with the immune system. And obviously the cough syrup isn't the only thing I love about this company. I'm obsessed with their honey sticks. I love the bee propolis spray. So if you're traveling, definitely always have that with you because again, it's going to help out your immune system. Ready to upgrade your medicine cabinet? This amazing cough syrup always sells out quickly, so don't delay. 
Check out Beekeepers Naturals to try Bee Soothe Cough Syrup and discover other clean remedies your family will love. Save 15% on your first order today by going to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash unstressed. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com slash unstressed to get 15% off your order. Meet your new medicine cabinet with Beekeepers Naturals. Oh, hello, Houston. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. We've just been chatting, I guess, quote unquote, backstage and realized we had similar musical interests. And that is like the most exciting connection point so far of my day. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, we are here primarily to talk about your new book, Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk and act in kindness. So Talk to us about the moment that you decided that this work, your mission, would actually be a book because it's not a small undertaking. It's a big decision. So talk to us about that process. Where were you? What were you doing? Uh, I Maybe, I, yeah, I, I could have mistook it for, a, um, <laughs> I think I thought of it as a smaller undertaking than it was, uh, but I was on the beach and I, I've known for a while I wanted to write a book and I'm such a, like a visual learner uh, that I it had to be like, I had to see the cover in my brain before I could write it down. And I was sitting on the beach and I, I saw the cover and the original title of the book was confetti in large part. The the book was inspired by my work in schools. I've, I've worked uh, in person at 600 schools over the past 10 years. And all of them, or the vast majority of them talk about kindness as being an important thing. And one of the most consistent posters I've seen hanging in the halls of schools is throw kindness around like confetti, which I get is well-intentioned, but as someone who's like been obsessed with trying to work, make the world a kinder place for the past 10 years, I'm like, you know, I think even this well-intentioned poster is perhaps one of the most damaging narratives we have about kindness in our culture. Mm. That if we, if we associate kindness with something as simple or as easy as throwing confetti in the air, I think the message that it gives not only young people, but all of us is that kindness is, is free. In fact, I hear people who are frustrated as they look out into the world, the state of the world. And they, they're like, why aren't people better to each other? You know, like, why aren't people just more kind? And they make it seem like it's a simple thing. But my argument would be that uh, kindness is not free. <laughs> you know, kindness, re- kindness costs us something mm. almost all the time. It's going to cost us at the very minimum time, uh, which we have limited amount of uh, energy which in a time where we are overworked and a bit exhausted uh, is a limited resource. And in a lot of ways, comfort, right? Like this, this willingness to extend ourselves beyond uh, our own personal perspective, our own lived experiences, uh, to listen to other people's hurt or suffering, all of that costs us something. And I think we have this like weird narrative in our brain around when something is free, we don't allocate the necessary resources to improve at it. Kindness, I think, right now in our culture feels like a nice to have, or it almost feels like a given for some people. And my argument is that it is a skill <laughs> that, like anything else in our life, requires intentional, disciplined practice if we're going to actually improve at it. So I was sitting on the beach and I saw this. I was like, confetti, that's it. I want to talk about how we need a new way to talk about this thing. And, uh, and then my publisher said, you know, you shouldn't call it the thing you don't want people to do. <laughs> the brilliant publisher. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, publisher. So I said, yeah, let's, let's, instead of confetti kindness, the world needs deep kindness. Mm. It's just strange to me that it's not a natural thing. You look at babies and they seem very kind. So what happens along the way? It's <laughs> a good question. Uh, one of my favorite premises, I love words a lot. And I learned recently that the word human in Arabic translates roughly to, to forget. So I, I enjoy the premise truth or not, that we are born with everything that we need. We're born pretty naturally curious, open, uh, compassionate, generous, generous at times, <laughs> not with our food when you're babies <laughs> or our toys, but that we have this disposition towards the world that culture over time forces us to forget. So cultivating practice of kindness in the world is less a matter of learning and more a matter of remembering. Mm. Whether or not that's true, uh, maybe for each person to decide, but I, I like that idea of like rediscovering things that are natural to us. That culture has um, has asked us to do differently. For example, uh, 
Harvard describes this thing called the rhetoric reality gap. This guy, Dr. Richard Weisbord, asked families, he said, rank in order for me what you want most for your kids, high-performing, happy, or kind. One, two, three. Like 80-something percent said they'd rather their kids be happy or kind over the idea of being high-performing. That seems like the natural like inclination you'd have in yeah. an ideal world. But then they asked the kids of those same parents, what do you think your parents want you to be? Mm. High-performing, happy, or kind? And the data was the exact opposite. In, in the distillation of the research, they said that the vast majority of kids had believed that their parents would rather they get good grades than be good people. Yeah. That is not something that we're born believing. That's something that our culture and the way that we talk about culture in my organization is, is uh, behavior, right? That the behaviors of the world teach us what things are, <laughs> what success is, for example. And I, I think we have this rhetoric reality gap where we say kindness is this really important thing. But then the, the questions we ask, the things that we measure, the things that make people, quote unquote, successful in our world, uh, don't take into account kindness. You know, one of my favorite paradigm shifts, or, or like if you're thinking about how do I translate this into my own family or my own world, is uh, my friend Keith Hawkins asked a group of students, a massive group of students in an auditorium one time, how many of you have had a parent or guardian in the last month at the end of the day ask you the question, what did you do for others today? Hmm. Not how was your day, now what did you learn today? Which yeah. when you dig into those questions, they are achievement oriented. Yeah. They're transactional versus what did you do for others today? And in this room of like three, 4,000 students, zero hands went up. Hmm. And that, just like that narrative reminds me of, of how much we can claim to value a thing without putting the systems or structures in place to actually show we value those things. Yeah. And that's the key, isn't it? Right. It's not just about being a good person. You know, everyone wants to be happy, wants to be nice to others. It's a nice thing. But if you don't actually have a ritual around it or any kind of framework around it, how can you ever expect to, to put it into practice? I think that's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I, we have this weird, um, weird distinction in our, our culture, I think, between values and skills. Right. I would never fix a chain on my bike and call myself an engineer. I wouldn't put a bandaid on my roommate's elbow and call myself a doctor, but sometimes we'll do like one kind thing or we're like, we'll have a big community service day and we, we let ourselves call ourselves kind people. Yeah. And I would, I would suggest that it's more of a process of arrival. My friend Dexter Davis frames it beautifully. He says, we're not human beings, we're human becomings. Mm -hmm. Will Durant, yeah, it's a semi-well-known quote, but the idea that um, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. And I would scratch it out and say, kindness is not an act, but a habit. Yeah. Anything that we want to become requires the disciplined ritual or practice of doing over time until it is a part of who we are. Yeah. And I wonder too, what our parents are saying. It's, it's not really necessarily what they're saying. It's how we're interpreting it. Everything is, like you said, so transactional. Everyone is busy. And so it's like, well, you know, let me look at your grades and make sure that I'm being a good parent because you're getting good grades. And I'm going to ask you about that because that's, that's my report card too. You know, as a mm. parent, I'm doing my job. I'm, I'm, you're, you're on the right track. And so I get it. I get why it's not a part of, of everyday conversation, you know, around the dinner table. I, I, I completely understand that. And I think my audience does too, because I guarantee you, we're not asking our kids, you know, what did you do for others today? So I love that you brought that up. That's so beautiful. But what was it about you that made kindness your mission, your platform? Where did that come from? <laughs> I wish I could pinpoint the moment. I, um, I would suggest like most people who kind of find their way uh, who are deeply drawn towards anything. It has a lot to do with the people in their life and, and the paradigms that have been shifted. So the people in my life, um, I have incredible parents who uh, my dad pretty determinedly never hangs up the phone without saying, I'm proud of you. Uh, and my mom, who is a simple example, like kindergarten through 12th grade, wrote me a note in my lunch every day. And I love... Uh, both of those examples as examples of consistency, 
which I think plays an underrated role in Mm -hmm. (laughs) kindness in the sense of the notes my mom wrote as an example, they, they took her maybe two to three minutes each day to do which isn't a lot of time in the moment, but in the aggregate, right? As you add that time up, I look back and I think to myself, that's, that's the most profound collective action of love that I think I can at least like tangibly identify to my mom because it was this practice. It was a, it was a consistent thing. So I had role models like that in my life, which is the best possible case scenario. Um, and then I had teachers in my life. I, a hugely transformational thing for me in high school was a, a summer leadership camp that was like bringing together student leaders from all over the state, uh, talk about what did it, what did they mean to go back into your school and be a leader? Mm. And the camp talked about the distinction between uh, like authority and influence. The authority can come from like a position or a title, but influence is something that is built they started to unpack this idea that leadership isn't uh, necessarily about a position or title that they've researched the word leadership and cultures and definitions from all over the world. And they found that the most commonly used word or idea is the idea of influence. Yeah. And the reality or the, the framing they offered us was that means that every person is a leader because every person has influence. Even when you choose not to act in a situation, you're influencing that situation. So we're all influencing all the time. And one of my heroes and a great author named James Hunter says, it's not a question of if you're leading, the only question is, are you effective? (laughs) And are you using your influence for good or for bad? Yeah. You could frame that through the lens of parenting as well. Are you effective? Do you have the tools? And are you driving people towards positivity or or goodness or compassion in the world? Uh, And that paradigm shift for me as like a high school student, like changed the way I saw myself in the world. So even though I was like student body president, I had this like formal title. My goal was to go back and they like, they talked about that path. How do you cultivate influence with people? Well, it's through service and sacrifice, right? It's, it's through the practice of things like kindness that people not guaranteed, but typically more naturally are drawn towards you if you're giving generously towards them. Right. Um, so yeah, in the shortest version, those are the things I pinpoint of like just these incredible role models in, in my own personal family and friendships uh, and then paradigm shifts and how those like, it's why I feel so passionate about the book itself, right? Which is the way we think about words mm-hmm. in our head shapes the way we act with them in the world. So leadership, for example, just changing the way I think about it in my brain, my paradigm shapes the way I practice it in the world. Kindness, my paradigm around kindness is going to shape the way I practice it in the world. God, I mean, it's like complete alchemy, you know, in that second, in that millisecond. I mean, you changed your life. That's mm-hmm. incredible. And then the amount of people, really, now, especially the amount of people that you're impacting, do you feel the energy from the crowd when you're giving a speech on kindness about being a leader, about engaging with your other kids, like getting out, you know, from just the me, me, me mentality and like, what, what about this other person over here, you know, who's by himself? Do you feel the energy coming back or do you feel resistance from the kids? I, I feel a des- like a desperation for hope, you know, like I think to, to go back to the, like the concept of remembering, I think a lot of young people um, grow into kindness before they grow out of it. You know, I think there's like a really natural disposition towards wanting to help the world. Mm-hmm. And then I think they see some of the ugliness, at least of how the world operates uh, or they, you know, they experience their own personal rejections or traumas and, and slow, like cynicism is like a, a very slow burning candle. And I think for a lot of young people, it's, it's on the far side of high school where if that's going to start to be their disposition towards the world, that's where it starts to happen. Unless they're given permissions, not the right word, but like, like frameworks, paradigms, right. Where they're, mm-hmm. where it validates their heart in a way that, that like amplifies their hope, amplifies their mind, amplifies their practice. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not very often true resistance. Maybe you get the kid who's like talking over the assembly who Mm. doesn't care or or is just easily distracted. Um, but the vast majority of kids in a really beautiful way are like desperate for tools because they're, I think they're genuinely frustrated. They look into the world and they're like, you claim you want for me to be this thing. And yet I so consistently see that not lived and yeah. so like what what is true yeah i think it's giving them opportunities to understand how they can make it true in the world uh i need hope 
Yeah. It's, it's hard for me as a parent too, because like, I want so badly to be that leader, that role model. And then you add on like a pandemic and work stuff and kids are home all the time. And it's like, man, like, what can I do to, to build that framework? You know, like I don't have a Houston craft coming to my house to, to shake me out of it. You know, like for everyone listening, what can we do? What can we put into place to, to have that grow that within our own families? This episode is brought to you by Faherty. Faherty is a clothing line fueled by purpose and optimism. For them, life and work are both family affairs. The company was actually started by two brothers, twins to be exact, and they melded their love of fashion and business acumen into a brand that was not only beautiful and well done, offering you clothing that's going to last a lifetime, but also that's doing it in the right way for the client, for the planet, for everyone involved. And I think, you know, now we know how destructive the fashion industry can be for the planet. And Faherty is taking such a progressive stance for fashion, um, for doing things the right way. And so, so I'm so honored to work with them and to share their clothes with you. And of course, if you're listening to this, you know I'm going to get you a good deal. Uh, with the code Motherhood Unstressed, that will save you 25% off everything on the site. You click the link in the show notes, that'll automatically apply the 25% off on your order. Or if you're doing this later, just add motherhood unstressed at checkout well i i feel like you know it you know it best in the, the first thing we can do is effectively role model self-care um and i've always had a tough relationship to self-care um but i, I recently was given a paradigm <laughs> a way of thinking about it that, uh, that freed me up to want to practice self-care more my friend dr michelle borba um has been researching empathy for like 25 years. And, and she's fascinated not only in, in empathetic practices and how to cultivate empathy, but also sort of like the inverse of that, what prevents empathy from being real. And in her research, she's discovered that it's, it's anxiety, fear, and narcissism. Mm. So narcissism, we could categorize a little bit as those, like, those questions that the world asks of young people, which most of them unintentionally are convincing young people that the world is all about them doesn't have to be the disposition, but most of the questions that the world asks young people orients them to think about themselves mostly. Yeah. Uh, fear is usually, uh, like the experience in the unknown and obviously like current realities considered, we have so many, so many things we don't know. Uh, and on the far side of not knowing things, anything that we feel like is beyond our control is where anxiety most develops. She describes it like this. She says, when uh, anxiety goes up, empathy goes down. Yeah. And I love like this, this simple statement there, which when you really unpack it, it's really true. Meaning the more I'm worried about what's going on in my world, mm-hmm. naturally the harder it is to think about what's going on in yours. You can't, you can't. Like your mind is focused on one thing, you know, and it's you. Anxiety moment. is an inward emotion. Yeah. And empathy is, a, is an outward extension. And so what has helped me like reframe self-care as a simple first step. And like, how do we help young people navigate this? Is that if anxiety is this, like this rising wall in our brain that turns us inwards, self-care is the practice of slowly deconstructing that wall to see beyond ourselves. And that's what I want for my life, right? Like I want to be a generous, kind, compassionate person, but I, I can never effectively do that if my attention is always towards me yeah. uh, and so that's where that like paradigm shift of self-care can be to increase our effective care of others but even just the visual for me of like allowing myself to see beyond myself convinces me that I need to dance in the morning that's like for me that's like an exercise in self-care putting on music dancing moving my body expressing myself is the, the most cathartic like version of self-care for me the number one thing I think families can do is, is role model that really effectively, um, both in action and explicitly. I'm doing this so that I can better be present for this, yeah. right? And showing how that, that equation actually works. I can't show up for you right now because I'm thinking about this, this, and this. So I'm going to take 30 minutes to do this so I can give you 15 minutes of real attention versus an hour of half attention. 
Yeah, um, because that's what happens with parents. You know, they're plowing through. They they think that they're sacrificing and being martyrs for their children, but really, like, they're making it so much worse. And I'm speaking about myself. You know, like I'm I've yeah. been there. You know, like I know, like it's not you're not helping when you're completely stressed out and you're just like, okay, we gotta just get this done. Yeah, uh, well, my favorite nugget I heard on a podcast was wise people take their own advice. So typically when we're sharing these things, we're almost always speaking to ourselves. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if I were to, if I were to pair that with another like practical, um, strategy, it would be to think about the idea of ritual. The way I, I frame it in my mind is the distinction between our to-do lists and our to-be lists. Mm. And our to-do lists are, are relentless, uh, as families and even for young people, like the average like middle school or high school kid is as busy as, or if not more busy than the average CEO today, like the intensity that they navigate is, is so much. And so all of us have this really long list of to, to do's. And because I think so much of our culture tells us that our worthiness is wrapped up in our productivity, we're constantly seeking to get things done. We like checking things off. Yeah. The hard part about something like kindness, as an example, is for most people, the concept as a value is so abstract, it becomes less actionable. So it's like, yeah, of course I want to be kind, but I also have, uh, let's see, 10 emails. I have 17 unread text messages and three unread Slack messages as I'm looking at it right now. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and I know exactly the process of what it looks like to chip away at that. Like I know roughly how much time it's going to take me to respond to these, which ones I can toss and not, how I can... But when I say be kind, the idea is so big that our brains typically get overwhelmed and, and we favor what we can control. And so we yeah. go back to the to-do list. So the practice that I think is, is valuable as a family or as an individual even would be at the top of your daily to-do list, write out a one item to-be list. And that, that to-be thing can be the word, I want to be more grateful today, as an example. I want to be more present today. Uh, I want to be more encouraging today. So you get to choose your own adventure into that. And then the, the challenging part is to spend at least a few moments in reflection to say, well, what does that look like in a doing, you know, in a ritual? Uh, I only have 10 minutes today. What does yeah. being celebratory look like in 10 minutes? I only have five minutes today. What does kindness look like in five? And writing it down and, and prioritizing that to-be list, not only like internally, but visually in front of us to have just as much importance as the to-do list, because otherwise we will always be too busy. Yeah. Right. We'll never have the time. So is that what you do? Do you do morning pages? Do you sit in meditation after you dance or what's, what's your morning routine like? Because obviously, <laughs> you know, you, hopefully you're taking your own advice here. Sometimes, yes. Um, my dancing is my meditation. Um, and so I, my movement is like very free and it is like the most creative, most like, like dance. Yeah. Most like unconscious I am. You know, I think I spend so much time working on projects where the, the, the space between thinking and action are, is wide, where I, I'm conceptually as an idea, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, and I'm finally executing and dance. The space between thinking and action is so shortened. That to me, it's, it's presence. Um, and then I, I am not a, a, a great journaler, <laughs> but I do sit down each day. In fact, all of our organization, Character Strong, every team member writes in their daily work goals and um, it's a to-do list. And then at the top, every person writes out a to-be list. So uh, that is a practice that we have organizationally. Yeah, and then that. to amplify to amplify the the execution of it, we have accountability, both through a form of partnership. So my partner's named Julia for this quarter and that rotates each quarter. And then each week at our weekly team meeting, before we get into the numbers of the business and where we're going next, the first thing we do is share good news and whether we're on track or off track with our weekly value pursuits, basically. I love that. I love that. I think so many more businesses should be doing that, especially now. I think that would be a game changer, really. Hmm. Yeah. And the gift is it doesn't take much time, right? I think often about like the return on investment. Right. I can, I'll spend, I'll have spent two hours of my day writing emails. But like, think about the impact that those emails have versus the five minutes I take to send a message to my grandma or a voice note to my aunt. And if I make that a part of the ritual, then, then time does not always equate to impact, right? 
So organizationally, that's true as well. It doesn't take a lot of time uh, to bring these things to life. It just takes a lot of intention. Well, and really like, that's how I think your business has grown so much. That's how your reach is, you know, you're in Lay's commercials, but it's like the intention I think was always pure behind it. And that's why it was able to scale, you know, (laughs) as it has and as it should be, you know, when you were traveling all over the world, did you notice was the concept of kindness the same like it is here in the United States? Was kindness looked at differently in other parts of the world? Or do we have like this weird American lens on kindness? (laughs) Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I think we have a transactional lens on, on kindness because it's a, it's a large ethos of our culture that we have to give something explicit uh, in order for it to be generous. Um, the example I, w- I would draw would be the, like the Sandy Hook shooting that uh, happened many years ago. And, and in response to this tragedy, people from all over the state sent teddy bears mm. in response to this moment of pain. So many teddy bears, in fact, that the town, Newtown, Connecticut, had to rent a 20,000 square foot warehouse to house all the inbound gifts. And the guy that planned the candlelit vigil has this really profound statement. He goes, you know, a teddy bear is great, but a teddy bear doesn't pay for counseling. The teddy bear doesn't pay for a funeral. I think in a really generalized American version of kindness, we often separate empathy from the action of kindness. Meaning we want to do the thing that gives without taking the time to understand the need. Mm. And I think uh, some of the other places I've been, it's a bit of the inverse. Uh, Haiti, for example, where um, I went about a decade ago and, and have served on a, a board of a nonprofit there called Haiti Partners. And so I've had a chance to work deeply in, with that area, with that culture. And I, I think there is like, yeah, the opposite, which is first listen, and perhaps the most like generous, kind thing they do on the far side of that is the simple like acknowledgement of your story or the smile on the far side or the game that they make out of it. Um, and so I think we have a little bit of a backwards mentality. We, we give to feel something as opposed to feeling and listening in order to give. Mm, yeah. And I think it is because we're so, you know, commercialized here. How do we really develop a kind nation when everyone has a problem, but you can buy something to fix that problem. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, uh, it's one part rewriting the narrative of success. Yeah. Uh, and we do that in the questions that we ask, we do that in what we measure or choose to measure in, in schools. As an example, we do that in, uh, in, in how we speak about it as families. Um, my friend, Kyle Sheely, he says success to him is, is how many nights he comes home smelling like campfire. And I love asking the question of people like, what's your non-traditional metric of success? And do you measure it in the same way that you measure the traditional metrics of success? Because if you don't, maybe it's not actually what success looks like to you. Because it's hard to improve with the things that we don't measure or pay attention to. Um, So that's that's one piece of the puzzle. And then the other piece of the puzzle is feels more personal to me. There's this great book, The Power of Habit by Charles Dewey. And he says that 45% of our day is routine. 45% of our day is habitual. And to me, it's an astounding statistic, first of all. And upon a little bit further reading, you realize why it's true. Because the average person makes 15 to 30,000 choices a day, consciously or unconsciously. Parents probably make more. <laughs> and, and our brain seeks routine as energy conservation technique. Yeah. Right? We're looking for ways to not make the, all decisions because every time we have to be, decide between this or that, it costs us even a small amount of energy. That's why I think Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every day. It's like one less choice to make is right. a gift to our energy. Part of the reason like during a time of something like COVID, we're more exhausted than usual because so many routines have been blown up and we're having to make more decisions per day. To zoom out for a second, I think about if, if 45% of my day is habitual and I expand that out, it means that about half of my life is on autopilot. If that's true, one of the questions I, I, can, I would ask myself is, have I designed any percent of that to be kind? It goes back to the ritual concept. It goes back to the consistency concept in the sense of 
the way that we change culture is, is not through media moments. It's not through the giant GoFundMes. It's not through a profound action of kindness or celebration. And while those things can be meaningful and fun, change almost always happens in the quiet, disciplined moments. And if I were to choose for myself or to help hold accountable and encourage my family to make a 1% shift in my daily practice of kindness, that 1% over time is always going to be more meaningful than the one-off experience. Yeah. So how do we reorient culture? Well, like 1% over time, (laughs) compound interest. (laughs) I love that. I mean, I think a lot of people would just feel like the problem was too big and like, oh, this is just too big of a mountain to climb, but you're like literally doing this every single day, percentage by percentage by percentage. I mean, even you coming on the show, like it's a small percentage. Yes, it's a part of your time, but like, it's like that much more, you know, the woman that's going to hear this is going to think about what you just said and be like, oh, okay, you know, I can do this too. It's not easy, but I can do this. Oh, I love that. Okay. So let's talk about mental health and parenting. Um, obviously I, I need this advice, you know, it's been, it's been a year. Um, that's a big part of your mission. You know, it's not just about the book. I mean, obviously that's a huge part of, of why we're here today, but talk to us about the event that you have coming up and, and everything that you're doing in regards to parenting and mental health. Yeah. I, well, what, what I know is, is when we feel under-equipped, uh, so unknowns and, and under-equippedness are two things that create anxiety in our life. And uh, I know you know that in the work that you do and particularly in, in serving families. So yeah, our aim at Character Strong, which is the organization I co-founded, we, we focus on teaching skills uh, and in schools, pre-K through 12th grade. And we work a lot with educators with the premise being kindness is like this outward action that is informed by a whole internal set of behind the scenes skills. Like all the things that happen behind the scenes before I do a kind action is a big deal. Yeah. So how do we provide supports to make that real? Same thing goes for, for families who are potentially in the middle of navigating, uh, not only their own mental health, but the mental health of the people that they, um, <laughs> young people, their children, the, the people, people that, that were traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm interested actually to, to ask that question to you uh, in an exercise in listening and, and discovery for those parents who are, are seeking to support the mental health of their children right, right now. What's the best gift you could give as a parent? You know, I really think it goes back to listening, like really listening to your child. You know, when I, when I can really key in and listen to what my sons are saying to me and they, they can feel my energy, you know, reflecting back to them. They know I'm really there. I'm really in the moment. Like that gives me energy and excitement, but it's hard to get to that space because like you said, like we're doing so many things all the time. Like the emails constantly, text messages, like I feel it all, like literally feel my phone vibrating and it's like, ah. And then, you know, my son wants to tell me something. So I think if I could be a better listener, I think that that would be, that would be everything. It's just a matter of, of time. Do you have any uh, mantras or mechanisms that help you tune in? What, what allows you to feel like that most present yeah, I heard something um, from Peaceful Barb the other day. I don't know if you know her, but she was like, you know, when I start to feel overwhelmed, I just say, you know, go where your feet are or be where your feet are. And you really like actually tune into your body. You know, you get out of your head and back into your body. Like my breath has always been something I can really regulate my emotion, you know, my stress response with. If I can just start, you know, four deep, calm, holding at the top breaths. I'm back, you know, I'm back in the moment, but it takes that like, okay, wait, 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 you know, like, wait, I'm not breathing at all right now to get back into that. And like, I think too, cause I, I do this self-care so much. Like I notice it more like when I'm out of balance, like I really notice it because I'm so used yeah. to being content and calm and happy. And when I'm not, I'm like really frustrated. I love the, the recentering of being back in your body to take you out of the distractions of the head to be like present in front of, uh, your boys, do you have a, a question that seems to resonate with them more often than others? Like what, what draws out the most enthusiasm or, uh, or conversation from them? I love asking them, well, what did you think about that? Or how does that make you feel? And that's all I have to say. And then they just go, 
you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, she wants to know, you know, and I like, it, it really like being a mother of boys has given me so much more understanding and compassion for men um, and just really understanding them and, and really seeing their true soul and their true essence and not being like, oh, that's, you know, the opposing team over there. It's the enemy. It's like, no, you know, they're just, they're just these special little guys, you know, even, you know, as my husband's older than me, but it's like, I still see him as a little boy too. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the, particularly for like young boys right now who are potentially feeling things that they don't know how to talk about, what's the, do you feel like you need to be the resource? Have you pointed them towards other resources? Where do young men go to, to feel that sense of like wholeness or it's okay? Well, definitely not YouTube. Um, <laughs> at least, at least the videos that I have seen. Um, no, I think, I think just being cool with them sharing really how they're feeling, you know, and not judging it and not coming after them and saying, well, you're wrong. And this is why, like, you know, da, 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 da. like really just not talking and just listening and, and not reacting when they tell you something that, you know, might make you a little uncomfortable in the moment. Hmm. So good. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's where families are at. It's just like, uh, again, to use the word permission that it is okay, uh, to simply tune in, uh, to dismiss the very natural feelings of wanting to fix or heal and just asking the questions. Tell me more about that. How does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. What does that make you think about? Uh, how do your friends experience that? Who did you help today? Who could have helped you today? <laughs> you know, there's so many of those questions that don't orient itself towards uh, solving the problem, but rather making people feel heard, which is uh, um, that's something we can yeah. control. Yeah. Yeah. That's everything. I mean, really like that's, I think all that anyone wants, right. Is to feel heard, to feel valuable in whatever, you know, you do, whatever path that you choose. Were your parents like that when you were growing up? Did they ask you these open-ended questions? Did they really listen to you? Um, they must've because you, you seem to understand it so well. Yeah, they, um, they were attentive. Uh, and they know this, <laughs> but I think uh, to some degrees, if anything, the failure was like too attentive, <laughs> you know, where that, um, that their, their happiness was in some ways contingent on, on mine, that their investment in me, um, as an only child, uh, as my therapist describes it is a sense of reverse abandonment where mm. I could tell that they wanted so much for me to be happy that I began to feel responsible for that happiness. Um, and so it's an interesting balancing act of that, that attention again, to kind of come full circle, the attention that we give to our young people to be held in balance with our own practice of self-care and in the relationships that we have outside of our children, um, is, is also an important like sort of counterbalance, uh, that they have, they need to have that like independent spirit as well as feel heard. Um, and so, yeah, they are incredible parents who were figuring it out as they went. And I think I was also um, naturally like driven and from a pretty young age, they celebrated that a lot and they celebrated a lot of achievements. I look back and think uh, maybe some of the language they used or the amount they celebrated those achievements has, has drawn me towards a life where like achievement has been at the root of so much of what I do. Uh, so even, you know, <laughs> there's no escaping something going, uh, going awry in the equation. Um, but the biggest gift that they give me is that they're, they're open to feedback. You know, I, I've shared some of these reflections that like, ah, that's hard to hear. And that makes mm. a lot of sense and I'd be better for you now. And so that's where the listening is a, an ongoing cycle. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly the greatest gift of my life. So Wow. That's beautiful. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, mom and dad. Didn't mean to throw (laughs) the therapy bus there, but (laughs) Uh, no, but I, but I think that's so important because how many people are afraid to actually have those real deal conversations with their parents because they feel like they are responsible for their happiness or they're, they're elderly. We don't want to upset them, you know, but I can definitely remember sitting on the couch talking to my dad and being like, dad, you were 
way too strict when we were growing up. You were way too hard because he was a Marine. So it was like, yeah. he was a Marine Colonel and it was, it was like we were in the Marine Corps, you know? So everything was, was standard based and you had to be perfect. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I get it. But at the same time, it's like, it's that double-edged sword, you know, you are achieving, you are striving, you are, you know, not giving up for anything. So I'm thankful for that too. But you know, we do what we can with <laughs> and try to try to serve others. But I love, I mean, I love that this is the path that you have chosen. Um, you know, you could have really done anything you wanted to do. Why was, why was this? And why does this continue to be, you know, your mission in life? And what, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, I think I, uh, at this point, I'm like in it for the long game. And I think that education for me is the the most meaningful pathway towards a a better world in the sense that like everything, uh, Dr. Ross Green, a child psychologist says kids do well when they can. And he says, the only reason why a young person wouldn't do quote unquote, well behave in the way that we're hoping them to is for one of two big reasons, unsolved problems or, um, lagging skills unsolved problems, meaning there are things happening in the background that affect my foreground, things that are happening at home, traumas, circumstances that are happening in my world that are making, that I don't know how to handle them, big issues, big feelings, and I don't know how to wrestle with them. And lagging skills, meaning I don't have the tools to wrestle with them. I don't know how to regulate this motion. I don't know how to self-soothe. I don't know what kind of attachment I need to make to this person in order to feel better. Um, and as you, as you look at the, the world at large, you realize that, like, to edit Dr. Green's beautiful quote, people do well when they can. And there's no coming-of-age ceremony where your unsolved problems go suddenly solved. Uh, and there's no certificate you get at 18 or 21 or any age where it's like, hey, by the way, here's all the skills that you didn't get taught. Uh, that the the behaviors we experience in the world, particularly the ones that frustrate us the most, if we were to look at them through the lens of empathy, it's because of unsolved problems and lagging skills. How do you help that in the long term? Well, unsolved problems are resolved by caring adults, by, by thoughtful, conscious relationships to the people that we care about and love and the healing that needs to happen Lagging skills are solved by teaching, by equipping uh, educators and the system of education with curriculum and training to actually come beneath those behaviors and say, hey, here are the tools in your toolbox that are going to make a big difference in how you show up in the world. Uh, so I'm just a piece of that puzzle that I feel most passionate about because I think that it's the, the, the skills that we teach today is going to be determinant of, of the culture we experience tomorrow. 1000%, 1000%, especially, you know, as we all move towards, you know, an online presence, you know, social media and all of the pressure and the anxiety that that produces. I mean, I love something that you said in a speech. It was like the average teenager now is is dealing with the amount of anxiety that, you know, someone in the 1950s would have if they were in a mental institution. I mean, it's just incredible what, what, these kids are faced with and in what how the world has evolved and it's not changing you know necessarily we're not going back in time anytime soon yeah yeah we we take for granted you know it's it's hard to see the the mountain you're standing on from the perspective that you're at uh we young people particularly in the past 10 years you think about how much data has increased in terms of the, the inbound consumption. The average person will consume like 30 plus gigabytes of information a day, over a hundred thousand words, multiple hours of advertisements. And depending on who you are, where you are, it's like seven to nine hours of screen time. Yeah. And we haven't evolved fast enough. Our brain hasn't evolved fast enough. Young people's brains haven't caught up to sift that data effectively. And so one of the most natural byproducts of that is, is overwhelm is anxiety right? When there's so much inbound information, I can't possibly sift through it quick enough. And it's, uh, I think about the water here in Los Angeles. I have a Brita filter to filter that water, but I don't have that gift unless it's taught to me, unless I consciously cultivate it in my own brain for Mm -hmm. all the stuff that I get sent to me each day. And so when I think about the role of, of 
a meaningful adult in someone's life. Um, it's not to tell them who they are, what to do. It's not to give them a, a blueprint. It's to give them the toolkit. It's to give them the filter, the lenses through which they experience or see the world that'll uh, ultimately shape everything they do in that world. Yeah. It's that paradigm shift that you were given. Like, that's what I want to give my children. That's what I want to give to every woman listening to this so that she can pass that on to her children and to herself, you know, free herself from mental slavery. Uh, We are to the point of the interview where I do have some rapid fire questions for you. I'm ready. Okay. Kindness is? Intentional. I'm grateful for Mentorship. And last but not least, what's something that you've learned in life that you wish someone would have told you earlier on? How much bigger your life gets when you make yourself smaller in it. Hmm. What do you mean? When you orient your actions towards a purpose bigger than you, then your day-to-day feelings uh, are important, but they're not the determining factor in how you act each day. I like that. I love that. Um, okay. So how can my audience find out more about you, uh, sign up for any virtual events that you might be having coming up? I know you said you had one in December. So talk to us about that and where to find that. Yeah, everything is going to be, uh, well, if you're looking for the book and things around the conversations on kindness, uh, everything lives there. Uh, and then sorry, there's a vacuum cleaner literally up against the wall. <laughs> so if you're looking for a vacuum, it's nearby me. Uh, and if you're looking for information on upcoming like conferences and trainings and things like, or curious about character strong and the work we do in schools, uh, characterstrong.com. So those are the two big worlds, deepkindness.com and characterstrong.com. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Houston. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. We need it now more than ever. So keep on. You as well. Thank you. Hey guys, before we dive into this episode, I want to mention our show sponsor, Beekeepers Naturals. Now they have a wide variety of bee products like royal jelly, um, hemp honey sticks, but I want to talk to you today about their Bee Elixir Brain Fuel. Now this product comes in these little vials. Don't make the same mistake I did and take the entire vial in one sitting uh, because you will literally be buzzing around like a bee. This thing hacks through brain fog, gives your body and your brain such a boost of energy. I mean, it was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. I mean, it was incredible. Um, And it's because it works on your brain uh, as a nootropic, which means it helps elevate the functioning and the processing of your brain. So if you are looking for something to cut through brain fog, to hack productivity, to get deep into the zone, I highly recommend checking out beekeepersnaturals.com and clicking on their Beelixir brain fuel and use my code unstressed so you can save. You've been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so grateful that we got this time together today. And if you love this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would share it out on your social media. Make sure to tag us at Motherhood Unstressed. Connect with us at Motherhood Unstressed. I'd love to connect with you uh, and see where the work has gone in the world. And make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss out on an amazing interview with an incredible guest or our weekly guided meditations every Wednesday. 